Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, September 15th, 2011. We're so delighted to have you here. Our special guest is Sam Shaltain. The book is Faces of Learning. Welcome, Sam. Steve, good to be back. Really appreciate you coming back. You're a deep thinker. I appreciate that about you. In fact, I'm hoping it's going to allow us to dive pretty deeply tonight. The Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, the social network for educators I work on for Blackboard Collaborate. It's also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. That's at web20labs.com. Coming up, the Library 2.011 conference, November 2nd and 3rd, 2011. This is just delightful. I think we have about 130 presentation proposals now uh, from over 100 countries. Uh, really a lot of fun, co-sponsored by San Jose State University. should just be a blast. All for free coming up on November 2nd and 3rd. We are going to have a second process uh, for submitting presentations. Today was the deadline, uh, but we are going to allow a second wave of presentation proposals uh, because we have um, a little bit more time than we had calculated. So if you're still interested in presenting, uh, you can go to library2011.net or .com submit a presentation there. Also coming up, we have issued the call for proposals for the Global Education Conference, November 14th to 18th. This is five days of pure fun. Hope you'll join us there, globaleducationconference.com or globaledcon.com. Coming up on the Future of Education, uh, September 20th, Bob Gleiner talks to us about his movie, Lessons from the Real World. On the 27th, Cecilia D'Olivera on Open Courseware. On the 29th, a special show on a successful iPad in schools implementation. Peter Cookson on the 4th on Children's Education Bill of Rights. This is new. Timothy Wilson on his book, Redirect. I read this on a long flight recently and devoured it. One of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. And he's graciously agreed to come on the show. The book is Redirect. It's all about social change and narratives. Uh, really fascinating. Uh, Alan Blankstein on improving individual schools, then the Library 2.011 conference and Global EdCon. Uh, also, just for information, uh, the people from the Mozilla Open Badge project are going to come on, and from IDEA, the Democracy Democratic Schools uh, group, uh, are also uh, finding dates to come on. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded at futureofeducation.com in full Illuminate and MP3 versions. Um, so please, I'm looking at the note from Carolyn, back to school night, which I'm going to rush to at the end of this session as well. Um, but uh, they are all recorded at futureofeducation.com, both in MP3 format and full Illuminate versions. Uh, we talked to Howard Gardner Tuesday night, just fascinating. Uh, his book, The Unschooled Mind, uh, talk about deep thoughts, lots of fun there. Many questions we just didn't have time to get to, uh, but, but they'll come up in future shows. Okay, now's your chance to indicate where you're participating from. Look for the icons to the left of the map. Click on the star icon, and then click on the map. You can also shout out in the chat where you're listening from, time and temperature, etc. So North America, New Zealand. I think September 15th has turned out to be sort of a triple witching hour, Sam. Uh, there have been several deadlines today, lots of things going on. Uh, I don't know if it was as busy for you as it was for me, but wow, what a day. Yes, coming to its conclusion. Thank goodness. <laughs> Mercifully. <laughs> well, wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, we are sure delighted to have you here. So thanks so much for being a part of the show. So Sam, um, I, I really am serious about this. I really do appreciate your um, ability to speak deeply to the topic of education. Uh, before we start, though, I want to make sure we've cleared up a possible miscommunication of our last interview. Did I ever talk to you about the statement I made that I was falling asleep while reading your book? No, but I remember you making it, and I didn't take it the wrong way at the time. But if it would help you to clarify, that's fine. Yeah, it would help me to clarify. The book so challenged my thinking and was so 
interesting, but I would read portions of it and then take a little short nap and then I would back to being fully engaged. And it was a, it was a very funny experience because it was such a draining and yet at the same time uh, energizing and challenging experience. But to say that I was falling asleep while reading it, I, I've just never felt good about that. Oh, uh, unnecessary apology accepted and I actually um, appreciate the idea of being able to take in parts of a book and then go back and reflect and you know given that good learning is metacognitive itself it would make sense that um, a book that gives us something useful would force us to, to be that way. Well there are books and people who once we encounter them, kind of radically alter our thought process. And, and you did that for me with the concept of democratic education. I really appreciate it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, phases of learning. Um, the book's divided in, well, and first, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about the project, how it got started, and, um, uh, and what your experiences with it were. Sure. So in a way, this project has had multiple iterations. I guess it probably began when I first became aware of the critical friends group protocol attributes of a learning community and had the opportunity to do that protocol with a lot of different communities around the country, often faculties where, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a, it's a protocol that's designed to give people an opportunity to reflect on their most powerful learning experience, regardless of how old they were, wherever it occurred and then to share those stories in a typical protocol format with strict time limits and followed up by clarifying questions, et cetera, um, to share those stories with a small number of colleagues. The purpose of the exercise is to mine those personal stories for insights about the core attributes of a transformational learning experience, see what commonalities exist across stories, and then apply that shared wisdom to the daily work in schools of trying to create the best possible learning environment for kids. And the epiphany that I had, because I, w I was fortunate enough to be doing it with really different communities all over the place, was that the list that people would produce at the end was always the same. Um, I mean, the phrasing may have changed slightly, but. But, and it's a bit of an obvious epiphany, but you know, I hadn't had it yet as an educator, which was the things that people need in order for powerful learning to occur are the same things. And wow, that's, that's important. Like other people need to, need to know that. We need to like, you know, put flashing lights on that insight and make more people aware of it because as we all know, the current, most current efforts to reform public education are not actually grounded in a deep understanding of what we know about how people learn. So, so the original idea was to just, well, the idea was this, what if we could gather as many stories as possible from as many people as possible, like take the idea of the protocol and just stretch it out nationally and internationally so as to construct a national mirror and basically hold it up to the country and let people reflect on what they see. And because the, we knew that the attributes that emerged, whether it was 10 stories or 100 stories or 1,000 stories or 10,000 stories, would be the same. And first this was a campaign called Rethink Learning Now, and then out of that campaign, um, I was approached by Josie Bass and they said, hey, could we make a book out of this? And I was like, sure, that's a great idea. It's just another way to, to reach people. And so from the many hundreds of stories that were gathered in the Rethink Learning Now campaign, we chose, well, I, as editor, I chose 50 and those are the 50 stories that make up the book. And Steve, I, I can't hear you. Right. So I've got behind, so I'm, I hope the pause wasn't too long. Hey, um, that was, uh, you and I have talked about this before because it seems to me that it's a combination of hearing other stories, but it's also telling of your own. And, um, and I think we made the connection with the open technologies concept and future search. And one of the things I've loved about future search is that it starts with individuals telling their own stories. And this ties in with Tony Wagner who said something very similar to what you said, which was we went out to all these communities and people basically came up with the same list of things. 
so my understanding was that you're kind of also working on this at a local level of the understanding of the value of people recreating these stories for themselves, telling these stories for themselves. So have you had any progress there? Uh, actually, it's been um, <clears throat> it's been very exciting and gratifying to see that, as I was saying before, the the book was a happy accident. But um, with some some close colleagues, I took the opportunity of the book's release to almost think of a of a rethink learning now campaign 2.0. And I saw somebody um, earlier share the URL. It's facesoflearning.net. And in effect, the idea was both to continue gathering stories online and encouraging people to do that own work in their communities, but also to um, try to provide a schedule of events. And it's key to note that the schedule of events would not be some centrally organized book tour. It would be communities that decided, yeah, this is where we're at. We like the idea of actually giving a real vivid cross-section of our community a chance to come together and reflect on stories of learning and then think together about what implications that has for our work in fill-in-the-blank. And so the book was released in February or March, and since then there have been events in San Diego, Washington, D.C. I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning. There's going to be um, an event in Oklahoma City on Saturday. Uh, there's one in Portland, Maine in a couple of weeks. Um, and and really, it's, it's the, the website is designed to provide um, some central resources, but also just a place for people to try to stitch their local energy together. Um, and, and actually, on the home page, there's a video from the event that we did in DC. And what I've encouraged everyone to do is to make sure that there is a videographer there at the event so that people that don't have the chance to, say, attend the San Diego event um, can at least get a sense from a video online uh, what happened and maybe even get some ideas because, of course, the only common thread of these events is that they be focused around people sharing stories of learning. But how people choose to scaffold that and what other things they choose to do um, really depends on the community. Like Portland, Maine's event is going to be almost just a straight story slam. Um, San Diego's had over 200 people, a really rich um, list of partners, and, and it ended with everyone filling out a postcard of what they pledged to do as a result of this, and the organizers sent those out to everybody like seven weeks later. So, so there's been a lot of interesting theme and variation so far, and it's, it's that type of of work that we hope will continue, especially maybe with the help of some of the folks that have chosen to take time out of their day tonight to listen in on this conversation. So I did this in my local community. And our end goal was each individual help creating an education declaration, sort of a set of guiding principles for how they were going to make decisions about education. Has anybody kind of done that, sort of a similar outcome? Sam, is your mic off? Um, yeah, I don't know if you, were, if you were a part of, Chris Lehman at Science Leadership Academy organized um, a declaration of education thing earlier this year. Is that also what you're referring to, or is it something different? No, I've had kind of a beef with Chris because he actually did it after me, and I had educationdeclarations.com, and he set up declarations of education. Some weirdness. I know, but anyway, so no, they were separate initiatives. Okay. Um, well, it 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 really it really depends on what the on what the goals are and which particular partners are coming together. Like in San Diego, it was very much a coalition of K-12 and higher ed. Um, in Portland, interestingly, the, the chief person that's bringing everybody together works for Oral Health America, but is now partnering with a local um, community space called the Telling Room and involving organizations like the Institute for Humane Education. So. The specific goals really depend on the nature of the 
collaboration. But to me, that what matters most is um, is that people use the opportunity to get at what are the four main we think best questions, which are also featured on the Faces of Learning homepage. And they're the questions that we wish everybody would start asking and answering in order to improve either their schools or even just the organizations where they work. So the first is, how do people learn best, which is what the stories are designed to address. The second is, how do I learn best? The third is, what does the ideal learning environment look like? And the fourth is, how do we create more of them? Um, and there's some other resources on the website that help people unpack those other questions, but maybe we'll get at that a little bit later. Yeah, that's part of this uh, kind of drill down I want to do, and it, and it relates specifically to some of the themes that came up with Howard Gardner on Tuesday. But before we get there, um, the five sections of the book are challenging, engaging, supportive, relevant, and experiential. But you didn't have a section on being test-driven. Yeah, that, that got edited at the last moment. Um, yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, um, I've yet to, I mean, I've been gathering stories around this particular prompt for really intentionally for the last three years, and I've yet to get the story of somebody that their most powerful learning environment was based on not even, not even a test, but a grade. I mean, which is, again, it's not to say that um, I think it's an important distinction that needs to be made over and over again. Tests are valuable and have their place in education. Um, grades can also be valuable and have their place, although in both situations it depends. But what the stories clearly reveal, those five sections you talked about, those are the five attributes that appeared most often across all of the stories, not just the 50 in the book. Um, and what, the, what they reinforce so powerfully to me is that powerful learning, first and foremost, is relational. It's interpersonal. It's social and emotional. And it's as much about, well, actually, really, it's often less about academic learning as it is about helping people better understand themselves, their strengths, their weaknesses, what they want to do and be in life and why. And to me, that, that's so relevant to schools, which are certainly perhaps primarily, I mean, right now they're exclusively concerned with academic learning. But really, if we think about the purpose of schooling and the role schools have in a democratic society, academic learning is just one part of what we hope those kids are going to be able to develop and acquire by the time they graduate. This is a point John Goodlad made years ago in a place called school. So I mean, this is nothing new. Um, but of course, because of the particular climate we're in since No Child Left Behind and the test-driven environment, it's become even more essential to make that point, although I really do think um, the pendulum is about to shift back. And when I say about, I, I don't mean in the next three weeks, but I mean we're, we're on the verge, I think, of being able to have more space to make the argument that I just made and not have people immediately shut you down because we're talking about soft skills or it's not quantifiable. So let's skip forward because it's too compelling to, we'll come back to the book in a minute, but um, you know, in Howard's book, The Unschooled Mind, he makes the argument that um, academic understand, or understanding is a rigorous exercise and it takes work um, and that the unschooled mind, the, the mind that exists before understanding or education, often has a misperception of how things work and in sort of an ironic self-reinforcing cycle, the misunderstandings often lead to less creation of opportunities for understanding and if I've read him correctly, and, and I'm, but maybe I'll take these words and, and, and not attribute them to him, but use them myself. One of the difficulties is that the, um, the progressive, thoughtful understanding is really hard to, be, to, make, to help make that the mainstream thought, and you will always have a large group of people whose idea of solutions will be very different than 
sort of scientific rigor would prove. I think we see that in prisons and prison reform. We see it in politics and we see it in education. Um, how do you get out of that dilemma? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Um, well, so by way of answering it, what you made me think of is um, recently I read the book by Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom, and you know it was his 1940 version of a psychological portrait of modern man, and he talked about the fact that um, that we both um, we both feel the need to we seek freedom to be ourselves, um, to um, be progressive thinkers, to you know fully actualize the full extent of our possibilities as a human being. But that only works if we're actually living in an optimal society. And when there's the disconnect between what we seek freedom to do and what society actually allows us to do, the, the, what we can end up responding, the way we can end up responding is by seeking freedom from. Um, and we see lots of examples of this, like Glenn Beck rallies, you know, and literally the phrase that, that Eric Fromm uses, he talks about people seek the magic helper, the person that just has all the answers and makes things very simple. We see this in classrooms where kids that aren't used to being asked to think critically and are suddenly done so, and perhaps maybe even being asked to do so in a way that isn't most skillfully set up by the teacher, just say, could you just, just tell us what to do? Um, so the only way to address those larger societal irregularities is to be much more intentional as individuals and is as organizations and for all of us in the work that we do to make people more conscious of, of what it is that is essential in every human striving to be and what is blocking our individual and collective capacity from being that way. And that is, that is not just a life's work, that's a generation's work. But I do think that the answer is as simple as making people more aware of the systems that hold us prisoner and developing the collective capacity to think more creatively about how to solve it. And to try to make it a little bit more concrete, I mean, just look at public education. I mean, any school right now can actually make really meaningful changes to itself simply by using the attributes of a learning community protocol. And I'm not saying that that's a cure-all, but I'm saying the logical place to start is to mine the collective wisdom of the people that live and work in that building as it relates to the most essential thing that that building needs to be about, which is helping people learn, and to then look at that list and think, in what ways are we already set up to give our kids opportunities that reflect these attributes? Let's celebrate those things. In what ways are we currently set up to prevent these things from happening? Those are the first changes that need to be made. So on one level, it really is that simple and direct, but I'm not naive to the fact that these are, these are massive um, physical and emotional barriers. Actually, just one more point on that. You know, like if you think about memes, right, like shared cultural symbols and memories that, that people consciously and unconsciously share, almost all of the most powerful and intractable memes in American society relate to American public education. They relate to the symbols of school and the symbols of schooling. I was asked recently to comment on why like 41 states were doing away with um, cursive and did I think it was a good or a bad idea. And at the time I thought, really? I'm being asked to comment on this? Like, don't we have bigger fish to fry? But okay. So I asked some friends of mine via Facebook, like, what do you think? Should we do away with cursive? And it was so interesting to me that everybody had an opinion one way or the other, which was a reminder to me that because that's a common experience, learning cursive, everybody has an emotional attachment to whether or not we should keep it or get rid of it. And public education is a minefield of those types of cultural attachments, e even sometimes when we don't when we had a bad experience 
It was at least our experience. We shared it with others. And why are you going to make it so that my kid doesn't have the same? And any type of reform strategy that isn't conscious of both the physical, logical barriers like structural changes, you know, new buildings, et cetera, but also the emotional barriers, the inner conditions from which we operate, the hopes and fears, there isn't a chance in hell of it being successful. So I want to make reference to a blog post that, that you wrote about um, um, believing. And I don't remember the title of it, but uh, you, you said um, the things that we struggle to talk about we struggle to talk about what we really need to talk about because no one wants to admit we're not sure of how to get there from here. So is there a degree to which when we have limited information we gravitate towards sort of polar um, opinions? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's um, it's tough to it's tough to live in the gray. And and in a way, what we see happening in, in education, I mean, learning is the gray um, because it's highly individual, it's highly nonlinear, and it forces powerful learning, by the way, is always usually always risky and uncomfortable. We're not in our comfort zone. We're in our risk zone. So there's an element of transformation associated with learning itself. Um, and we're applying black and white. We're trying to will black and white simplicity onto a field that is eminently gray. Um, and it makes sense. I mean, everybody, it would be great if we could just easily solve this problem. But as a lot of people I'm sure that are listening in on this conversation um, also realize, uh, what we do over and over again is we try to solve problems before we deeply understand uh, the root. And the latest round of education reforms is just the latest example of that. Well, so I'm going to make a connection, and you need to tell me if I'm you think I'm being too aggressive here. But I'm seeing I feel like I'm seeing this a lot in the venture capital. Um, activity around education. Um, and, and again, forgive me for, for maybe oversimplifying, but it feels as though there's a lot of money being pushed towards sort of silver bullet solutions by people who don't, haven't really thought deeply about educational issues. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yeah, it's fair, and it runs the risk of being applied um, to absolutely. Like, I just happened to read Diane Ravitch's review today of Steve Brill's new book in the New York Review of Books. And um, I, I know Diane. I like and respect Diane. I've had lots of conversations with Diane over the past couple of years about the fact that she, she is such a powerful person in, in the space. And I wish sometimes she would speak less absolutely, although I think that's actually part of her appeal. Um, so, but one thing that she did say in that piece was, I think, accurate, which is a lot of the people that are funneling so much money into education right now are folks that have never really experienced education the way I'm sure almost all the people on this call have right now. Um, so they haven't been in the trenches. They're, they're trying to apply that same black and white thinking, and their, their money is mucking stuff up. I think that's a fair critique. Um, what bothers me is when it then gets applied so broadly that anybody with an MBA or anybody that, um, that is new to the space has nothing to offer. I mean, again, to me, I think the worst thing any field can do is only have conversations about how to solve their most intractable problems with each other. I, I wrote a column a couple months ago um, called something like, do, all great, do great conferences have a special sauce? And I wrote it because I had just attended the best conference of my life, and it was actually a business conference. It was called World Blue, which is a global network of democratically run companies 
which is a very interesting concept in and of itself. And I mean, this is everybody from like Groupon and Zappos to a 70,000 person manufacturing firm in India. But what was so powerful about the conference, among other things, was the fact that it was so heter heterogeneous. So there were business CEOs and human resources types, but also graduate students and educators like me and folks from Europe and North America, old, young, and, and, and it was the richness of perspectives that made the exchanges so powerful. So I think we need, those of us that are lifelong educators, we need the wisdom and the perspective of non-educators to solve these problems and some of these folks are just thinking way too simplistically and having an outsized influence because of the depth of their pocketbook. So this kind of goes back, I think, a little to your sense of um, sort of involving the community and the community voice. And certainly a conference around democratic workplaces is going to be filled with people who are respectful of other people's opinions. And that was one of the intriguing things for me about sort of the venture capital concept was here's this enormous body of educators who through social media are really deeply involved in conversations about pedagogy and changing education. And yet all of these VC funded conferences that are springing up are not inviting those folks or not opening the doors to them or not maybe that's not fair, they don't seem to be reaching out to this very community of educators who, to, to my mind, are the ones most likely to actually implement real change. Unquestionably. And to me, this is one of the biggest problems in the field is how polarized it's become. So, you know, you've got the, I mean, you could just go down the list, right? So people, anybody that finds out I'm an educator, they want to know, are you pro or anti-union? And then they'll want to find out, are you pro or anti-Teach for America? Are you pro or anti-charter school? And so there's been a, there's definitely been the creation of some camps. And so at a lot of those, at a lot of conferences that are, to use the parlance of the day, reform or organized, you have a lot of um, social entrepreneurs and not educators. And to me, um, the value is in bringing social entrepreneurs together with educators, with journalists, with um, business people, with uh, design folks. Um, so, but the good news is um, <laughs> those of us, uh, we can all immediately take responsibility for our own behavior and our own sensitivity to constantly reminding everybody that we live and work with to try to be as balanced when bringing together folks to at a conference or to try to solve these problems as possible. Um, and if we can all start to lead by example, I mean, what else can we do? Well, I think you're doing one of the one else's, which is you're actually creating opportunities and venues for the that support this kind of uh, storytelling and uh, opportunities to be part of the narrative. It sure feels as though that's that's one thing that can be done as well. Yeah, thank you. And that that was part of the idea in bringing together the 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 fifty folks um, who are in the book was to try to have real diversity in terms of not just the typical things, age gender, race, um, but region, profession, um, political affiliation, um, which you wouldn't necessarily know from the stories, but um, in the questionnaire that, that I gave anybody, that an opt-in questionnaire to anybody that filled out a story, it also included political views and religious views. So trying to have those 50 voices reflect to the fullest extent possible as many other faces as possible. Um, because it is about, um, I mean, again, learning is relational. So the, the, the faces of learning title is very intentional to try to restore our focus on, on ourselves and on each other as the, as the, the central the central riddle, the central beauty, the central um, 
landscape on which we're trying to conduct all of this work. Which stories meant the most to you personally? Um, well, it's I can't answer in terms of, of one, but I'll say um, Ted Sizer's story, I mean this book is kind of, it's meant to be um, a dedication to Ted and to his legacy and to, and to his wife Nancy's legacy. And so, and it's just a beautiful picture of Ted and his wife, um, you know, towards the end of Ted's life. I didn't get to know Ted long, but I was really grateful for the chance that I had. And so his story, which is actually him being young and teaching um, other people slightly younger than he was in the army how to fire a rifle. Um, Maya Satoru Ng, who's President Obama's sister, um, and the story that she tells about their mother and what her mother taught her about what it means to be a woman. Um, and then actually my brother-in-law is in there and he tells a story of his favorite teacher who was somebody that I used to work with um, who just recently um, died way too young and he captured the um, the the genius of, of Marlene and also the the um, the inconsistencies. I mean, he describes you know she could be downright mean sometimes, but then other times would just leave you speechless. You were so inspired, and so those three come to mind. I was really taken by Al Franken's story. Uh, that was very moving to me. For those of you who end up picking up the book, um, and then I read Arnie Duncan's very closely, trying to figure out how I felt about it. Um, what was your take on that? Well, my take on on Arnie's story is probably like my take on him, which is um, Arnie Duncan really wants to get it right, and at times he says like the things that I mean I couldn't ask for a secretary of education speaking more the language that I value and talking about the types of things that I and the people in the field that I most value care about and I don't think I mean I think he means them but there's clearly a disconnect between the policies that are being pushed most aggressively and like the clear wisdom of that story, which was um, the value of people um, coming together and learning how to care for one another. So, so I still hold out hope <laughs> that the, the sides of Arne Duncan and President Obama that sometimes say exactly the right things will rise to the surface. I wouldn't say that I'm optimistic that that's going to happen, but as opposed to, say, Margaret Spellings, who never said the right thing ever, um, it's something. So I wonder how much of this reflects the fact that we're at a, a pretty significant inflection point. You know, we have uh, social media facilitating uh, voice in those uh, who have typically not had voice in institutions, especially say in the Middle East. And we're now seeing that, I, I hope, in education. And, uh, and I think sort of understandable, not laudable, but understandable pushback by institutions. Um, it, it is, are we at a little bit of sort of a crisis that we're going to have to work through in terms of how we think about how things work uh, because of this change in who does have voice? Unquestionably, you know, I got earlier this year, I got to um, give a talk at a TEDx event and, and in effect what I chose to talk about was partly the work around faces of learning but also um, the fact that if, if I were to get most specific about what's happening, um, it would be that we are trying to, people talk about paradigm shifts a lot and to me the paradigm shift is we're shifting away from the industrial and the information age and we're 
we're inevitably moving towards the democratic age. I mean, that's, this is the year of revolution and upheaval, and it's everywhere from Egypt to Wisconsin. Um, and it hasn't yet reached the fever pitch and doesn't look like it will of 1968, but in a way, um, it's the same kind of year where there's just something in the air <laughs> uh, in a lot of different places across the world. And the common refrain is people seeking uh, back to Eric Fromm, again, who wrote that book in 1940. So he's watching the rise of fascism and totalitarianism, but I mean, the shit hasn't really hit the fan yet, you know, as far as, as Hitler is concerned, and yet what he saw there was what is still true today, which is, it is, I think, the most fundamental human desire, and I've seen some of the comments. I wish I could multitask more so I could also participate in the chat, but I've at least seen a few that have wondered about the extent to which some of this is culturally specific. And I think some things like, uh, I think the comment was maybe collaboration is more of a, of a Western value than others. And uh, that, that may be true, but what I believe is universally felt on some level in all human beings is the desire for freedom too. Uh, and, and so we have no choice as a, as a global community, but to get better at figuring out how people can live less in conflict between what they want for themselves and others. And I don't mean the capitalist want, I mean the, 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 the deepest sense of freedom want and what society is set up to actually allow them to do. And I don't know when we're going to get there, but to me, that's the most hopeful possibility of human beings is that we're gradually moving into that type of a world. We shall see. Well, there's certainly no move to democracy without significant messiness. And if I, if I look at this from a personal perspective, you know, it feels to me like it's broader than education. Um, there's been a great unraveling of trust for me. Um, I don't feel I can trust the mistruths that I hear coming out of a, a, a lot of politics. I also don't feel like I can trust the White House anymore because of its collusion with Wall Street. I, I personally feel very uh, much like I'm in a, a crisis of meaning. And uh, my guess is that that's, is that just part of the messiness of reconfiguring how we think about life? I think so. Um, That's I not mean, a very positive response. Well, no, it's, I'm just in the spirit of um, of you taking naps when you read my book. Like, I just have to. That's a big thought. So um, I'm holding the space with that. I mean, unquestionably, democracy or any form of open society can't operate without trust. So on one level. I think beyond just any individual kind of crisis of meaning, we've got a crisis of, of governance and of government. So to me that those two things are related but distinct. Um, and I think we are at this moment in history where we're all, or not all, but many folks are intuitively sensing this deeper shift that's occurring. and. With that comes a lot of fear and uncertainty, and to me, that's the that's the crisis of meaning, um, of wondering, of uh, anxiety about how it's all going to turn out. Um, but they're obviously they're related. Our our ability to resolve them both is inextricably linked. I, I'm going to go back to the book for a minute. I really loved the um, five things you can do sections. Uh, did you have fun making them? Yeah, very much. We, I did that in uh, American schools as well. Um, and again, the idea very intentionally is that, I mean, a book is always just going to be like a fixed moment in time, you know. So in, in this case, this book is those 50 stories. In the case of a American schools, it was my best effort to, to reflect the thinking that I had done up to that point. But obviously, all of us, we keep learning and evolving. And, you know, there are all of these great 
people I've met and books that I've read since writing American Schools, etc. So, so the five things you can do is designed to just provide other breadcrumbs um, for other folks to check out other things that may be useful and to try to also reinforce that you know a, a book is a necessary and insufficient part of piece of the puzzle um, and so there's just a lot more good stuff out there and actually on the website on facesoflearning.net we've also provided a way for people to specifically add to the list of things you can do which a traditional book can't so that's been fun to see the types of things that people choose to recommend and bring to the table. So one of the things that you recommend doing is reading the Horus Trilogy, which I have not read. And I have a stack of books here that, I, that I'm calling education classics. And I'm delighted to see that Jackie Gerstein in the chat mentioned a list that she's keeping as well. Um, I, can you think of any way that we could actually provide some kind of a focus on those books? I've, I've wanted to do an interview series, but of course the authors, most of them are not around. Um, have you got any ideas about how we might actually focus on some set of books that are worth reading about education? We're, we're not just talking about the Horus Trilogy, but... But, oh, but, but you know, I've got a, li a long list here of books that include um, Vygotsky and uh, Dewey and um, and of course, um, uh, Ted Sizer and, and others that I've just never read. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think you provide one of the most valuable forums out there for people to come together and think about stuff. So in the case of the Horace books, for example, um, Nancy Sizer would be a wonderful guest and I think would really appreciate the opportunity. Nancy is a very deep thinker herself um, and would provide not only a great representative for the ideas in the book, but also help to flesh out some of Ted's thinking that went into them um, and then to just make it as interactive as possible. Um, uh, but let me let me let me keep thinking on it as far as the other ones. And I mean, to me, I don't know if you've ever had Parker Palmer on, but the Courage to Teach is, if not the best book on education I've ever read. It's pretty close. And so, having Parker Palmer on to talk about that book and some of his stuff, I mean, I'll tune in for sure. You know what might be kind of fun, Jackie, would be to take your list and kind of springboard from it, uh, maybe publish it in some way, get people to volunteer who might lead the discussion. If the author isn't alive or there isn't someone specifically who could talk about it, still have a session on that book with someone who, who agrees to kind of facilitate the conversation. So Sam, I like that idea. Okay, good. So I wanted to ask you, um, uh, about Finland. Uh, you and I, I think it in, at one point in some conversation I, uh, I either talked about it or I had some notes about it because they went through a cultural transformation but it took decades to get to a place where they trusted their teachers. Um, have you looked at Finland and all, at all and have you got any thoughts about lessons that we might learn from that situation? Yes. Um, I think there's a ton to be learned from Finland. And first, the caveats. Yes, it's a country of four million. It's largely homogenous, and it has low poverty. So it's, you know, it's kind of the, the uh, people compare it to Minnesota. But Minnesota's got exploding diversity now, so I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's like, you know, your grandmother's Minnesota. But, um, but so and th those are real um, issues. But in terms of the recipe, uh, I mean, briefly, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, but as you said, I mean, it was as recently as 30 years ago that they were a Soviet backwater and are now the unquestionable best-in-show education country in the world. Um, they, part of it is they went in knowing that it was a 20-year project, and I still don't really understand how they were able to pull that off. Um, but in terms of the recipe itself, it was let's invest deeply in teachers 
and we'll do it in the following ways. It's going to be really hard to get in to graduate schools of education. So we will only take the best and the brightest. If you get in, you'll, your education will be completely subsidized and you'll have a full year after your course of study working under a master teacher so that you can have a chance to test drive some ideas and just have a different sort of learning experience before you're ever given your own classroom. And because of that investment and the careful scaffolding that went into it, there are no national assessments in Finland. It's all locally driven because the teachers are so highly trained and qualified and trusted uh, to make the decisions about which assessments will help them best understand whether kids are learning. Um, now, in the U.S., with 50 states and 350 million people, it does seem clear to me that a federal solution to this sort of problem is not possible. That, I mean, we are in effect, if not 50 different countries, then, I don't know, 30? I mean, in terms of just real concrete differences that in, in another part of the world would be, oh, I don't know, Germany and the Netherlands. You know, I mean, like these are distinct places. So there has to be, I think, some form, there has to be a way to set up states' capacities to make investments similar to the type of investments that um, Finland made. And perhaps even to do so in a way that sets up friendly competition with each other. Um, but what does seem clear is that we need to invest much more deeply in the teaching profession. We have to create a long-term teaching profession, not accept a short-term teaching force. And, uh, and unfortunately, if I look at today's reform strategies, I feel like it's close but no cigar. Like, there, clearly the focus right now is on teacher quality. It's just, in my mind, being done in the wrong ways. Um, clearly a focus has to be on assessment. Everybody agrees that the tests that we use right now are too myopic and they're, they're getting, uh, things are being thrown out of the curriculum. But assessment is also a clear focus of reform right now. It's just not being done the right way. So it's like we're almost focusing on the right things. We're just not focusing on the right levers. It seems to me that we kind of need a Gandhi. We need someone who speaks to the people but also tells a story that drives to really positive change. Hey, we're going to switch to a Q&A at this point. Um, if you've got a question for Sam, feel free to put it in the chat. If I missed the question, please place it again. You can also raise your hand. That's the hand icon in your participant window. So if you go ahead and raise your hand, we'll give you the mic. Uh, while we're waiting for a question, how do you feel about school choice? Um, so my, my newest book project is actually about school choice and, um, and it started when, so first I'm agnostic and I would say uh, the school choice genie is out of the bottle and is not going back in. And that's particularly true in places like where I live in DC where, you know, 3% of kids cross country are in charter schools, um, almost one in two are in DC. So the, the quick version of the, the new project is I'm going to be closely observing three different schools in D.C. over the coming school year. A brand new charter school, a plain old neighborhood public school, and um, one of those fancy D.C. private schools. And looking at them as a way to explore the idea of what, what a school's educational options say about the city itself and do, and, and the bigger question which relates to choice is, does school choice as it's currently playing itself out in DC get us closer to or farther from our, our shared ideal vision of a city and a society? And so I would say for me the jury's out and that's what I'm really going to be investigating closely over the next nine months. 
So if you have a question for Sam, again, the third icon over is the hand. That's the raise your hand or to put a question in the chat. Um, I asked that question knowing I had read your um, blog post on Plato. Um, and in fact, uh, was very struck by the, uh, the, the reference you made to deluding ourselves to think we know the nature of things. And that's led me to a lot of books on cognitive science. Have you been following much of the cognitive science, and how does it play into your sense of uh, teaching and learning? Um, definitely following it. Definitely not as knowledgeable as I would like to be. Um, but what what's most I would say what's been most affirming to my own thinking is the um, is the, the synthesis across so many fields right now, cognitive science being one, um, that all point to some shared insights about how the brain works, how we learn, why stories are important, why, to your earlier point, it makes sense for every teacher to just begin by figuring out what their, what, what their students think they know about the subject that's going to be studied, because until that's surfaced, um, anything that they say could be just added to, you know, a false edifice. So to me, um, the fact that we know so much about how people learn and apply so little of it is the main disconnect that drives my own work. Fascinating. Okay, so Peggy asks, what do you think about unschooling and how does it fit into the big picture? You know, I, I, would somebody give me a, a quick and functional definition of unschooling? I mean, I, I'm certainly aware of the term and have heard it, but it's like one of those things that if asked to define it myself, I can't. So my definition would be, and I, and I will accept uh, clarification by anybody in the room, that unschooling is different from homeschooling in the sense that uh, homeschooling often follows a standard curriculum, much like school, except that it's done at home, whereas unschooling does not have a set curriculum and typically allows the student to drive their uh, the learning process based on their own interests. And I would say it depends. Um, I mean, the, the the central thesis I put out in American schools is that the best possible democratic learning environment is the one that strikes the right balance between individual freedom and shared structures. So to me, powerful learning, uh, there are some people, I think, who can just completely be self-guided. Uh, and for those types of kids, the Sudbury model is perfect. But for the vast majority of us, that type of completely unbound freedom is, if not a recipe for disaster, then certainly a recipe for a lot of wasted time. And so for me, the, 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 the sweet spot is having just enough structure, the benefit of somebody else that maybe helps guide your own interests and channel your own uh, inquiry and equip you with the skills that you need to be even more effective at diving deep into what you care about. And so I would guess that for some people in unschooling, that's what they're doing. And then I would also guess, based on my own observations of democratic schools, is that other people would be, in effect, turning kids loose in ways that actually do the kids a disservice. Which maybe brings us right back to the whole point of individual relationships and the influence that an, that, a, that an educator can have on a student by understanding their particular circumstances and making a difference for them through that personal relationship. Did we lose you, Sam? Your mic is off now. Okay, yes, I'm, I'm back. Yes, definitely. Okay, terrific. Hey, we're at the end of our hour. Sam, I really appreciate your coming on again. Uh, you do such a terrific job of speaking thoughtfully about what I think are uh, important and deep 
issue. So I really appreciate your being here. I'm clapping for you. That's the smiley face rolled down to applause. Harder to find in this new version of Blackboard Collaborate. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you everybody else for taking the time to listen in. So uh, we will. I will process the recording tonight or tomorrow morning. It'll be up on the website tomorrow, uh, futureofeducation.com. Uh, next week, Bob Gleiner talks about his movie Lessons from the Real World. We've been visiting with Sam Chaltain on Faces of Learning. Thanks for joining us. Good night, everybody.